Well, hello again. Good morning, church. It's great to be together with you like this. Uh, special welcome to you at home, those that are tuning in online. Hey, Roger, back in the fishbowl. Um, grateful that we have the ability to gather as well um, together remotely, um, but this is, this is always a gift. I uh, want to let you know that tomorrow morning uh, and all of this next week, this building is going to be absolutely electric. Uh, is we're going to be hosting our first of our two uh, half-day camps. And so we've got uh, about 100 kids that are joining us. And on top of that, a tremendous uh, army of volunteers who are going to be helping to serve uh, our families and our community in this really special way. And so I just want to say uh, a special acknowledgement and a thank you to our kids' ministry staff and team, as well as the many of you who've stepped up and are going to be back here bright and early tomorrow to help us host. So thank you. We're looking forward to that. I want to remind you as well that, that things like that, uh, our half-day camps, are only made possible um, for those of you that partner with us financially and want to point you towards a continued invitation to partner with us in this way by the giving and receiving of your tithes and offerings. This is for those of you who call this place home and who are plugged in. If you're new here, there's no expectation on this. But uh, for those of you who would say that this is my home, we want to invite you to consider being a, a part of that with us. The best way to do that is continues to be online at our website, spac.ca slash give, uh, or at the kiosks out in the lobby. All right, I'm excited to be opening up God's Word with you today, uh, as we're in week three of the series that we're titling The Extraordinary Nobodies. That's a look at some of the Bible's much lesser-known characters. And this weekend, I'm thrilled to work through the story of Balaam with you. And I titled this message, From Donkey to Doxology, as this journey is going to move us, for sure, from the more familiar side of the, of the story, the donkey part, which if this is all new to you and, and you're new to this whole church scene, you came on a really fun weekend. Uh, but it moves us from the humorous to the glorious as the story of Balaam would leave the people of Israel and should actually also leave us in a place of expressing praise and adoration to the one who orchestrated it all. More on that to come. I want to give us just a, a bit of context. The story of Balaam is found in the book of Numbers. And so if you have a Bible with you, I would invite you, I'd ask you, implore you to open it up to Numbers chapter 22. And the, the story goes up to chapter 24, and the setting of the story follows along. The people of Israel are, are on their 38-year journey of wandering in the wilderness. They've somewhat recently been liberated from their captivity in Egypt, and they're moving towards, they're on their way to the land that God had promised to them. And at this point, the people of Israel, they've been blessed by the Lord. They were anticipating his great promises, promises of prosperity, promises of stability, but they're awaiting finally a place to call home after years of being oppressed as refugees and slaves under the Egyptian nation. And part of all of this would be as well the conquest of the nations around them on their way to the place that would be their new home. But the Lord has been leading them and directing them and providing for them victory after victory on the way. And now they're close like they can see the land, they can, they can taste it, they can anticipate, they're close, they're on the verge of taking the Canaan land that would go on to become their nation. And so where our story picks up is on the border of the neighboring nation, Moab. It was a small nation of about a thousand square miles, but it was the neighboring nation of the eventual promised land. And here's where we start, have a look, chapter 22, starting at verse 1. 
The Israelites traveled on and camped in the plains of Moab near the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was terrified of the people because they were numerous, and Moab dreaded the Israelites. So the Moabites said to the elders of Midian, this horde will devour everything around us like an ox eats up the green plants in a field. And since Balak, son of Zippor, was Moab's king at that time, he sent messengers to Balaam, son of Beor at Pethor, which is by the Euphrates in the land of his people. And Balak said to him, look, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the surface of the land and are living right across from me. Please come and put a curse on these people for me because they're more powerful than I am, and I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that those who you bless are blessed, and those who you curse are cursed. So if you didn't catch it, the Moabites and the king of Moab, they're terrified. They're scared. They they know what Israel's God has been doing in and through his people. They've been watching it all around, and they simply cannot fathom a scenario where the same fate doesn't come their way either, which is really painfully ironic, because you're about to see this story. It's, It's full. It's rich with irony, because in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses actually records that Moab wasn't part of the plan, wasn't in the way at all. Here's Moses' words in Deuteronomy chapter 2. It says, We traveled along the road into the wilderness of Moab, and the Lord said to me, Show no hostility towards Moab, and do not provoke them to battle. For I will not give you any of their land as a possession, since I've given it to Ar as a possession to the descendants of Lot. So despite this, despite the fact that they're safe from Israel, Balak sees this sea of people, and he assumes that the worst is inevitable, that the swarm is going to overtake the nation, and as a result, we're going to see Balak waste so much mental energy because of this pointless worry. He's convinced, as the Moabites are, that this horde will devour everything around like an ox eats up the green plants of a field, and so he tries to to grab a hold and, and take matters into his own hands. He tries to control that which he actually cannot control. And so he reaches out to this man, the one who promises power and control that's bigger than any mere mortal can manifest. And this is part of the story. Lots of the story is relatable, but I'm sure this is part of the story that that most of us can relate to. Fear drives us to do some crazy things, doesn't it? Drives us to do things that really doesn't make sense. And when we find ourselves with our back up against a wall, often the worst parts of us are exposed. And in desperation, just like Balak, we struggle to try and grip and grab a grip, grab a hold on anything and everything that we can. The famous um, preacher Charles Spurgeon used to say that anxiety does nothing to rob tomorrow of its sorrows. It only robs today of its strength. So Balak is a case study on what it's like to waste so much on something so unnecessary and should force us to recall Jesus' teaching about the tyranny of worry. Regardless, he's terrified. And he makes some really deep assumptions and tries to take things into his own hands in the only way that he can think of. And he goes after this seer named Balaam. Balaam is described here as a prophet. He's the prophet for prophets. 
But it's important to note that he's not the same sort of prophet that we have in our Bibles, like our minor prophets, our major prophets. Balaam was a diviner or a soothsayer. He was someone who claimed they could speak things into existence. He wasn't an Israelite, far from it, in fact. He was, he was the opposite. And he was someone who could be hired out and for the right price, he could speak for you about the future and even speak things into the future, or at least that's what some people believed. And it appears Balaam has a pretty good track record. It seems to be flawless as the king describes that those he blesses are blessed and those he curses are cursed. And so from the king's perspective, Balaam, he's the surefire bet in helping eliminate the threat of the Israelites and soothe subsequently his own fears. So the story continues. The elders of Moab and Midian departed with fees for divination in hand. They came to Balaam and reported Balak's words to him. And he said to them, spend the night here, and I'll give you the answer the Lord tells me. And so the officials of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and asked, who are these men with you? And Balaam replied to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent this message to me. Look, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the surface of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. I may be able to fight against them and drive them away. And then God said to Balaam, you are not to go with them. You are not to curse this people, for they are blessed. So Balaam got up the next morning and said to Balak's officials, go on, go back to your land because the Lord has refused to let me go with you. Now clearly this wasn't the, the answer that the king was looking for. He needed a curse to be cast upon these people, and yet here Balaam is telling him it cannot be done. A curse cannot be given to this people because Yahweh has chosen, chosen to bless this people. And so the king, again, in desperation, he sends a second group, this time a more powerful group, a more persuasive group, and along with them, he sends promise of, of unimaginable wealth and riches with the goal of undoing what Balaam has already said is the case and turning the blessed into the cursed. And a second time, Balaam replies. He says, if Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go against the command of the Lord my God to do anything small or great. But please stay here overnight, as the others did, so that I may find out what else the Lord has to tell me. Then God came to Balaam at night and said to him, Since these men have come to summon you, get up and go with them. But you must only do what I tell you. And we got up, when he got up in the morning, Balaam saddled his donkey and went with the officials of Moab. Now again, this story is, is rich. It's oozing with irony. Here we have Balaam describing that the Lord, Yahweh, is his Lord. Now this little detail was clearly written for the Israelites and for their sake only because Balaam was not a worshiper of Yahweh in the slightest. And so this is a poke against his transient allegiance to any and all of the deities whom he might be able to persuade by his eloquent words and actions to do for him whatever he asks for them to do. Regardless, Balaam goes. And now we come to the story that's probably the more memorable, certainly the more famous part of the story. But God was incensed that Balaam was going, and the angel of the Lord took his stand on the path to oppose him. 
Balaam was riding his donkey, and his two servants were with him. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing on the path with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the path and went into the field. So Balaam hit her to return her to the path. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow passage between the vineyards with a stone wall on either side. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord and pressed herself against the wall, squeezing Balaam's foot against it. And so he hit her once again. The angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in that narrow place where there was no room to turn to the right or the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she crouched down under Balaam. And so he became furious, and he beat the donkey with his stick. And then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and she asked Balaam, what have I done to you that you've beaten me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, you made me look like a fool. If I had a sword in my hand right now, I would kill you now. But the donkey said, am I not the donkey that you've ridden all your life until today? Have I ever treated you this way before? And Balaam replied, no. And then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. And then he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the path with a drawn sword in his hand. Couple of things before we get to the donkey. (laughs) What do we do with the fact that the Lord tells Balaam, don't go. And then the Lord tells Balaam, okay, you can go. And then Balaam goes, and then the Lord's really mad that, that Balaam's going. What do, we, what do we do with that? We're not entirely sure. I, like, I, I tried to study and find what I could. We don't know what is going on here, to be honest. There's several speculations. The primary few revolve around the, the Lord might have been angry at the fact with Balaam's motivation, why he was going. So the Lord said he could go for sure, but Balaam's heart was what the Lord was angry about. His, his motivation to go was, was focused on cashing in. It was motivated by, by greed. That maybe is why the Lord was angry. The Lord's anger could have also been tied to Balaam's lack of integrity because he's going and, and he knows that he won't be able to curse this nation, but, but he goes anyway, maybe in an attempt to deceive Balak, to pretend as though he put a curse on them even though they couldn't be cursed. Or some simply think it's just tied to where it is that Balaam was headed. He was headed to this hilltop shrine, this, this place of worship dedicated to the, to the god Baal, the god that was worshiped by the Moabites, but we're not sure. What we do know is that that God pauses things, and he gets in the way of the trip in a really profound and a totally hilarious manner. Now, this story would have been memorable. I'm guessing it's going to be memorable for you, right? Having, having seen it, you're going to remember this story, but this would have been one that the, the children of Israel would have begged their parents every night, Mom, Dad, tell us about the donkey that talked to the prophet. Tell us that story again so we can fall asleep at night. The famous seer, unable to see that which was obvious to the donkey. That's that's the joke of the story, or at least one of the jokes. But again, it's not just humor. It's, It's deeply ironic. Balaam, this angry seer, he speaks to his animal. If I had a sword in my hand, I would gut you. I'd kill you right now. Knowing that the donkey can't answer back, but miraculously, she actually does answer back. 
And the harmless donkey's only offense is what? Saving Balaam's life from the very angel who actually did have a sword in his hand. And the joke ultimately is this. Forgive me for this one. But who's the jackass now? Like, that's the joke that God's making in the Bible for us. It's hilarious. And in a wonderful twist, the donkey becomes a blessing to the instrument of cursing. Balaam would have been the animal's executioner, even though the donkey had been his very savior. Look at verse 32. The angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten your donkey these three times? Look, I came out to oppose you because I consider what you're doing to be evil. And the donkey saw me and turned away from me three times. If she had not done that, if she had not turned from me, then I would have killed you and now and I would, let, I would have let her live. And so God had, had gotten Balaam's attention in a, in a pretty profound way. And now God is going to shift. He's, he's accomplished part of his purposes in the form of a donkey. But now he's going to shift to fulfilling his purposes using a pagan prophet. A pagan prophet. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I've sinned, for, for I did not know that you were standing in the path to confront me, and now, if it's evil in your sight, I'll go back, I'll go home. And then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, no, go, go with these men, but you're only to say what I tell you to say. And so Balaam went with Balak's officials. And so finally, Balaam, he arrives, and he's, he's now with the king, Balak, and Balak at this point, he's stressed, he's exacerbated. It says, when Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the Moabite city on the Arnon border at the edge of his territory, and Balak asked Balaam, didn't I tell you to hurry up? Did I not send you urgent summons? Why didn't you come to me? Am I really not able to reward you? And Balaam said to him, look, I've come, I'm here. But do you think I can say anything that I want? I must only speak the message that God puts in my mouth. And so Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath-Huzoth. And Balak sacrificed cattle, sheep, and goats, and sent for officials who were with him. Sent for Balaam and the officials who were with him. And in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him to Bamoth-Baal. And there he saw the outskirts of the people's camp. So in the presence of the king, Balaam now is going to get to work. But he's clear with the king that, that when he goes into his mode of, of speaking and, and prophesying, whatever that looks like, that, that he can only speak that which is spoken through him. Effectively, he lets whatever deity wants to take over and then speak through him. He's just like a, a vessel of their message. And so after offering these sacrifices to their various gods, he shares these four oracles, or these four prophetic messages. And here's the deal. I only have enough time to look at the first oracle in depth and what happens. I wish I had time to comb through each of these because they are so, so rich. I literally, I've told a few people, I could, I could have done a five-part series on Balaam and these oracles. There's so much captured within them. But I want to give you just a little bit of a roadmap with each of these oracles. And then if you want, you want to go home, you want to open up the oracles, you can come back to this message later, fast forward, and just kind of see the little outline and prompts I give you to help look at the oracles in a deeper way. But let's look at this first oracle that Balaam speaks. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come and put a curse on Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse Someone God has not cursed. And how can I denounce someone that the Lord has not denounced? 
I see them from the top of rocky cliffs, and I watch them from the hills. There's a people living alone. It does not consider itself among the nations. Who has counted the dust of Jacob or numbered even one-fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright, and let the end of my life be like theirs. This first oracle, it's, it's all about God's renewal of this undeniable Abrahamic covenant. If you were here last week, we talked a little bit about this. And what makes this so profound is the fact that Balaam, as a prophet, would have been absolutely ignorant to this ancient promise of the Lord, being that he himself wasn't an Israelite. So he had no, no context to just sort of cook up a prophecy like this on his own, meaning truly that the one who orchestrated these promises was in fact now speaking directly through him. And Balaam speaks to the impossibility of cursing someone who's clearly already been blessed by the Lord. He speaks of this idea of small insignificance. He's talking about Abraham, this very old man and his very barren wife who would be promised this, this absolute supreme significance to be the father of a nation that outnumbered the grains of sand on the seashore. Here's what Genesis 22 records of the promise of the Lord to Abraham. He says, I will indeed bless you. This is the Lord speaking to Abraham. I will bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. And so when Balaam, he finishes speaking this, this first oracle, Balak is furious. Because this isn't what he paid for. This isn't what he hired him for. So he says, why have you done this to me? What have you done to me? Balak asked, asked Balaam. I brought you to curse my enemies, but look, you have only blessed them. And he answered, should I not say exactly what the Lord puts in my mouth? It's literally impossible for Balaam to have realized that, that the language he used in this oracle, that the metaphor that he spoke would take the Israelites all the way back to their spiritual roots. And so while Balaam might have assumed he was having a, a private conversation, he was privately addressing Balak, what he was actually doing was, was very publicly encouraging the people of Israel, giving them now absolute confidence that just as God fulfilled his promises then, that he would absolutely fulfill his promises now. So God's first message through Balaam, again, a reiteration of God's first promise to Abraham. It was a promise of both people, but also a promise of land. And when that promise was given, Abraham and Sarah, they had, they had neither. They were a childless couple with nothing but divine promise, and yet that was enough for them. And now, on the verge, standing just outside of Canaan, their future promised land, Part of the promise has been gloriously fulfilled. Their number outnumbered the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. And upon hearing Balaam's oracle reaching the Israelite camp, the promises of Abraham would have flooded their hearts and minds because now they know that the second part of the promise was all but guaranteed. Here's that promise again from the book of Genesis. And to you and your future offspring... I will give the land where you are residing all the land of Canaan as a permanent possession, and I will be there, God. God's promise to Abraham was very clear. Whoever blesses you, I will bless, and whoever curses you will be cursed. 
yet another dose of irony. And while at times, for sure, Balaam's occult powers might have been highly dangerous, here against the one true God, he was powerless to inflict the slightest damage upon the people of God that God has already determined to bless. And in the days ahead, the people of Israel would enter this new land, this alien culture, and no harm would transpire against them through its its wizards and witches, its seers and soothsayers, its magicians and sorcerers. The Lord was supreme over all of these hostile powers, just as he had promised so long ago. And his sovereign will absolutely could not be thwarted. He would protect their homes and conquer their enemies, guarding them from both visible dangers as well as invisible powers. And again, another dose of irony is that it was Balaam who would actually be cursed, not the Israelites. As within a a short time, the destructive schemer would meet his death under the judging hand of a righteous God. That's another story. Back to this story. Balak is now frantic. He was paying Balaam for for a curse, and yet no such thing could come from his mouth. And so they move locations. They think, let's let's try this again somewhere else. And they, they attempt the cursing all over again, as is the case for the next three oracles. And again, this is just the first oracle. You see the tension here. There's so much in this story. So again, here's just a little prompt to help you read these latter oracles on your own a little bit later. Second oracle, it speaks about Yahweh's total reliability and would point towards his, his absolute dependability with the reminder that, that he's not addressed them or led them from a remote distance in the heavenly courts, but instead that he was alongside of them, that he was with them as they contemplated their journey into this unexplored future as one who acts on what he says and fulfills what he has promised. Another major theme of that second oracle was God's invincible promise. Their protector was with them. And this message would have assured the Israelite people in a profound way that with God on their side, they have nothing that can come against them. Here's just a snippet of that second oracle. It says, there's no magic curse against Jacob and no divination against Israel. It will now be said about Jacob and Israel what great things God has done. Simply put, Balaam, he just realizes that he's got nothing. <laughs> There's nothing in his, in his bag of tricks that, that's available to him that can help withstand the blessing promised to Israel. The third oracle speaks about God's abundant provision where, where Israel's presented this, this magnificent word picture or portrait of their immediate future as being fulfilled just as God had intended it. We'll cruise through it quick. He says, how beautiful are your tents, Jacob, your dwellings, Israel. They stretch out like river valleys, like gardens beside a stream, like aloes the Lord has planted, like cedars beside the water. Water will flow from his buckets and the seed will be by abundant water. His king will be greater than Agag. His kingdom will be exalted. God brought him out of Egypt. He's like the horns of a wild ox for them. He will feed on enemy nations and gnaw their bones. He will strike them with his arrows. And then it all comes together. It all culminates in the final oracle, the fourth oracle, this ultimate oracle. And what happens here is this profound way that, that Balaam, he looks 
beyond. The seer reaches well beyond time, for sure, in space. He looks beyond Canaan and beyond the Jordan River into the future to a promised star coming from Jacob. Hear these words from his last oracle. Numbers 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I I feel him. I perceive him, but not near. But a star will come from Jacob, and a scepter will rise from Israel. Now, this is the message that would have lit a flame of hope in the Israelite people, a message that had been treasured by millions. It's the promise of this coming Messiah. Balaam here, he's speaking of of Jesus. And after this, countless other prophets would tie this whole story together. That story would finally reach its last climax at the arrival of Christ. And with his advent would come this lasting conquest, this final victory, one that the world had never and would never see the likes of again. And it's in this perfect Meta narrative irony, because this book, the Bible, it's all one story, this, this perfect meta narrative irony that this star would appear some 2,000 years later, and this religious elite would try their best at every means possible to curse that star, to try and snuff out that star. And this group would actually even believe, they would even naively believe that they had succeeded in pulling off that great curse by putting to death on a cross that chosen one, when in fact, that very curse would in turn become the very thing that would pave the way once and for all for mankind to finally and fully be reunited and experience true and lasting promises of Yahweh. The cursed one becoming the final blessing. Paul just so brilliantly captures this for us in his letter to the church of Galatia. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. Because it's written, cursed is everyone who has hung on a tree. And the purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus, that's you. That's why the blessed one had to become the cursed one. So that the blessing of Abraham, the promises to Abraham could come to you by Christ Jesus. And so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. It's this glorious reversal. This beautiful paradox. The blessed one becoming cursed so that the cursed could become blessed. And that is the story of Balaam. A couple of thoughts as we land the plane here on Balaam's story. The first thing that we should learn from Balaam and we ought to learn from Balaam is that we should never arrogantly assume that we'll ever be able to persuade God to do something that is contrary to his character or his wise purposes. There's no formula that exists. There's no ceremony. There's no degree of intensity to our worship. There's no... You know, acknowledgement from the denomination that you are now a pastor, nothing that can actually change who God is and what he's up to. Nothing can influence God in a way that's contrary to who he is and his plans. The hired gun, the professional speaker, this renowned prophet for hire could not deliver the goods 
to Balak, and when he did finally speak, he could only say what God would let him say anyway, which angered his wealthy customer to no end. The eloquent messenger was silenced, and yet the silent donkey spoke. It's marvelous. And it reveals and reminds us all powerfully that God is God, and we are not. And finally, the story of Balaam hopefully helps us see that when God wants to do anything, when he wants to announce good news or or influence nations or change lives and, and shape destinies, that he will use whoever and whatever means necessary, be it a pagan king, be it a greedy soothsayer, or even a voiceless donkey. The beauty of this story is that, when, that it's God who, who achieves, regardless of what we as humans might, might try to plan. It's the unfolding of his will in which he can use anything and anybody to achieve his righteous ends. And we see this all throughout Scripture, all throughout the pages of Scripture, over and over, time and time again, where God takes special delight in choosing and using the nobodies of this world to do his will and his work and convey his message. So that as Paul describes, no one may boast before about what they have done because it's only and all by the mighty work of God and God alone. And so I hope that that can be an encouragement to you, to each one of us. Because if God can use a donkey to accomplish his will and purposes, then surely he can use you and me. Let's pray. Jesus, I am, I'm grateful and I'm humbled um, by this ancient story and the miracle that, that has preserved it to this point where thousands and thousands of years later, we can look to it and we can see you um, clearly and we can interact with you and we can get to know you and your heart and understand who you are just in a deeper way. And thank, so thank you for the, the gift of, of your word, Jesus. Help us to never take it for granted. Help us to come to it often for for refreshment, for filling, and for connection with you. And Jesus, I pray for for my friends here in this space. Um, You know uniquely what each of them needs to to take from this, from your word, from the story. Maybe for some it truly is the reminder of of, um, the lunacy of of being afraid and and living in in anxiety. Help us to, to see how how needless worry adds nothing to tomorrow but only takes from today. And may we learn to step forward with trust and courage. And for those here who feel like that they have nothing that they could offer, nothing that they could contribute, would this word remind them, remind each of us, that Jesus, it doesn't matter who we are or what we have, it's, it's all about you and, and your leading and guiding and directing through us. And so may we find confidence uh, in that, to step in boldly and courageously into the, the ways and the places of ministry that you want us to go, into our community, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, the places that we can impact and, and help your kingdom break in and through. And help us to all rest and trust and know and believe, just as you were faithful then, you'll be faithful tomorrow. Your promises, they're still true. We can stand on them with confidence knowing that you are God, you are on your throne, and you remain in absolute control. So thank you, Jesus, for space and time to be together like this. Would you bless our week ahead, we pray. 
Amen. God bless you, church. Thank you so much for being here with us. We look forward to being with you again next weekend. Have a great rest of your week. Take care.